I am Patrick O'Mara, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and try to get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Distinguished Professor Emerita, Susan Gubar, of the English Department. Susan, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you, Patrick, for having me. Susan, I'd like to talk a little bit about you, about coming to Indiana University, and about where you grew up, and eventually I'd like to talk about your important new book, The Memoir of a Debulked Woman. Susan, you came to Indiana in 1973. Yes. What drew you to Indiana? What was the attractive aspect, the English department, the town? I think one of the big attractions was uh, Ken Gross Lewis and Don Gray and a whole host of wonderful faculty uh, who made me feel so welcome when I arrived. I arrived just beginning to have my pregnancy show with my first daughter. And everybody was extremely cavalier about it, even though when I got to Bloomington in 1973, in a department of 73 people, there were only two or three women. But these were men who were very committed uh, to uh, social equity and to uh, women's progress in the academy, and I felt immediately very welcomed. And this has been a place where you've been able to write and think. Yes. And teach. Indeed. In fact, as I look at the array of books, The Mad Woman in the Attic, The Norton Anthology, and on and on. So you've been very productive in this environment. It's been conducive, I assume. Yes, I think the, you know, the old uh, cliche about teaching leading to research and, uh, and even service leading to research, in my case, has just managed to work out beautifully. This is a kind of sleepy college town. And because of the, uh, the smallness of the college town and yet the richness of its cultural diversity and its, uh, and its archives and its institutions, um, this is a place where you really can focus on teaching, research, and service. And somehow they, they can create a synergy. And for me, I was very lucky that they did. The Mad Woman in the Attic really broke new ground in so many ways. And it's unusual because you and your collaborator, Sandra Gilbert, came from different branches of the English world. Uh, You were a specialist on 18th century literature, and she was on 20th century literature. So it's ironic. As I read the introduction... You were in the hallway of Ballantyne Hall waiting for an elevator. Mm-hmm. And this is how it started. Yes, Would you tell us about that? It was an extraordinary experience. We were both hired at the same time in the fall of 1973, and we were both uh, coming with children and husbands. And um, both of us from New York originally. She was coming from California. I was coming from the University of Illinois in Chicago. And we met in el- waiting for the elevator in Ballantyne Hall, not far from that globe that revolves, and started to talk about how the phone never rings unless it's long distance. So we determined that we'd start calling each other and um, started talking about our common interests. We really did have completely different fields with me being in the 18th century and and she was writing on 20th century poetry. But it turned out that what we had in common was a great love of literature by women. That wasn't a category at that time. We just knew we loved reading Jane Eyre, and we loved Little Women, and we were reading Dickinson, and we were both very consumed with, you know, 
Elizabeth Barrett Browning, George Eliot, Jane Austen in particular. And so when we thought about the possibility of sort of um, teaching a course, partly because Sandra needed to teach an eight-week course in order to go back and commute when her family left for California, uh, we thought, well, what we had in common were, oddly enough, these women's texts, even though the word women's texts hadn't been invented yet. But this is sort of what we got interested in. And originally, we were going to call the course Upstairs, Downstairs. I saw that in one of the uh, paragraphs in the introduction. Right. We sort of floated it to Don Gray, who was a dear friend then, and um, and he said, no, no, it sounds vulgar. Vulgar was the Sounds vulgar, because yes. it was a TV show at the time. <laughs> and uh, we came up with The Mad Woman in the Attic because we were thinking about the anger of uh, Bertha Mason Rochester and Jane Eyre. And the course was called The Mad Woman in the Attic. It was taught to about 25 undergraduates at Indiana University and in the English department, and uh, the book took off from the course. Who is the woman in the attic, for some of our listeners who would be wondering? The woman in the attic in Jane Eyre is is enraged. She's uh, been confined, and we use that confinement as a metaphor for women's confinement in social and political subordination in the 19th century. So it's about anger and rebellion and rage and the ways in which docile heroines very often are reflected in these odd, monstrous doubles like Bertha Mason Rochester and Jane Eyre. A few years ago, I was in Barcelona, and an English professor was talking with me about feminist literature. And she started on The Woman in the Attic. She had no idea that you were at IU. That impressed me because it was clear that the book went far beyond the United States, far beyond the English-speaking world in many ways, in terms of the reaction to it and in terms of people who read it. Well, it was translated into a number of languages, including Spanish and Korean and parts of it in French. It was um, taught in England, of course, and in India. I think that it just struck a chord with uh, international readers um, and allowed them then to work in their areas in very different ways with the notion of doubling, subordination, anger. Strength. uh, and strength and and the sense that women had a particularly unique perspective on culture that they were working out in their poetry and in their fiction. It's interesting to me as well that in some ways the book went beyond literature because if I recall the conversation, it also impressed this particular professor in terms of who she was as a woman. Oh, that's that lovely had, to hear. It had an impact Would you agree that several women identified with the text but also with what was behind the text? I think so, but I also think to be a bit humble about it, that it was a period of time when many, many people were publishing wonderful books about this issue, um, some of them in psychology, some in anthropology. Uh, Gay studies was just beginning. Um, There was great interest in postcolonialism that sort of took off a little bit later. So I think that women's literature was part of this extraordinary explosion in critical writing and in women's lives and in the second movement of the feminist, you know, of the women's movement. And the book is in a second edition now. Yes, yeah. It was actually, I think, the 20th anniversary edition. I mean, it was a birthday edition of some sort, yeah. Another of your books, Poetry of Auschwitz, 
Again, what impressed me was that it comes out of a personal event, the idea of it. In fact, I think your mother was a survivor, and she had asked you to come to a group of women survivors. Actually, it was not a gendered issue. My mom and dad were both survivors. Oh, they they both left, survivors. yeah, they yes. left uh, Germany in 1939 with their one-year-old baby at that point uh, for New York. And my mother was a widow in the 70s and the 80s, and she started to reach out to people from her hometown, which was a suburb of Nuremberg called Fürth. And they had reunions at the Catskills, which is a mountain kind of place you can have a retreat. And um, all of the people from Fürth, from this little suburb of Nuremberg, would meet every two years or three years and uh, exchange recollections and family photos and reminiscences of the past. And I went with her to one of those retreats. And uh, I was struck with how really this sort of experience, the experience of second generation and first generation immigrants, really hadn't been recorded in literature, although there was a great deal of poetry being written Mm -hmm. in English about Auschwitz, about the Holocaust. So I collected some of those poems in English and read them to the group, and the response was very touching, and that that sparked the book. Your mother is a remarkable woman. Yes, she is. She's a woman uh, that comes through of courage and perseverance. She dealt with suicide. Yes. And so did you, of course. Yes. But she also dealt with survival. Yes. And in several of your books, you write about your mother, especially um, about her presence and so on. Yes, my mother is a remarkable woman. She is 96, and she lives now in Bloomington. She used to live in Manhattan. Uh, Wrote a a book of her own that she self-published about her experiences, her grandparents and her parents and her experience of the Nazi laws and why she had to leave and how she left. It's quite an an achievement. And this inspired you beyond the book, your mother's perseverance, your mother's will to survive? Yes, I think it has it has really made a very deep mark on me. So it's a tribute as well as a very personal yes, actually, transformative that book, experience in a way. Yes, I mean, that book, Poetry After Auschwitz, is dedicated to my mother. Yes. And um, really, survival is at the heart of her being. She's a survivor of the Holocaust, but as you say, she's also survived a number of personal losses and catastrophes with extraordinary dignity and grace. I liked a statement you wrote in the preface about memory, that memory creates the chain of experience which passes a happening from one generation to another generation. Yes. And this is very important, this notion of memory. I think it is terribly important, and I think one of the issues of uh, diaspora Uh, or some uh, traumatic event like the Holocaust is the breaking of links and learning how to reforge them, possibly imaginatively. I mean, part of the writing of that book, finding poetry in English by American and British poets about the Holocaust, for me, was learning to understand an event I had not experienced. She had experienced it, my mother, my father had experienced it, but the link was in some sense broken. I was born in Brooklyn, raised in New York. Uh, And for me, the imaginative and the poetic voice was a way to re-understand, re-link, re-forge the links with the past. And that's also something that will live on for other generations now, personal interpretation and writing. 
Well, and also through these extraordinary poets, I mean, yes. who are just astonishing. And the poets yes. themselves, yes. yes. Susan, I, to say the least, I was intrigued, amused, almost at times wanting to roar out with laughter when I read Rooms of Our Own. Now, I'll tell you why, and I hope this is not a response that you think is inappropriate, but I was engrossed in place. I recognized everywhere, from Ballantine Hall to the basement of the Union to the Art Museum sculpture in the front. And then I started reading about people. Now, here again, a very personal book. Yes, indeed. In which you are not writing a memoir. You're writing about someone who's a professor, who's not you, who's not married, no family, but who represents an important interpreter. Is that a good word to describe? Yes, I think that's excellent. And Rooms of Our Own is my uh, effort, uh, with a great deal of chutzpah, I have to admit, to reinvent uh, A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf. Uh, so I wanted to use her characters. She's, she uses a nursery rhyme about Mary Beaton, Mary Seaton, Mary Carmichael, and me. And I used Mary Beaton, Mary Seaton, Mary Carmichael, and me as the characters in um, an academic narrative about uh, life in the academy for feminists and for women in the English department at Indiana University. So it has a bit of a Ramana Clay quality. <laughs> And it certainly uh, was a great deal of fun to write. For our listeners, I think I should say a little bit about some of the chapters. It starts with an interesting class where you are attending a TA's session in order to do an evaluation. And to say that it was a colorful class is an understatement. Yes. And I thought it was wonderful because your description of the TA's dress Mm-hmm. And of the students in the class. Yes. In those days, I don't know if that's still the case now really so much, but in those days, the, they were all wearing extremely heavy backpacks, the <laughs> students. And um, the girls always seemed to have T-shirts that had shrunk in the wash so that their belly buttons showed. <laughs> I had a lot of fun with the various sartorial eccentricities of students and TAs. From the class, it moved to a conference. It moved to your house where there's a wonderful description of food, of your preparing for the participants in the conference to come to your house. Mm -hmm. And then interspersed are these marvelous observations on theory, on the state of feminism. And I thought one of the really interesting moments in the book was where this student who had made an insightful comment at the end of the class ends up being someone who'd had a sex change operation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in a way, you were reflecting time, weren't you? Yes, I was trying to enter into conversations about theory without being theoretical. So the idea was to make a narrative out of criticism. And I've always been fascinated by the idea of narrative criticism. I wanted to talk about the uh, rise of identity politics, African-American studies. I also wanted to talk about post-structuralism and the extreme influence of Foucault and Derrida. And then I wanted to talk about the emergence of queer theory and gay studies, including transsexuality studies. 
Uh, but I wanted to do this through characters and in situations that were lovingly depicted with some comedy rather than in a kind of arid language that I find rather forbidding. So it was narrative theory, narrative criticism, hopefully without the jargon. Reflecting Virginia Woolf's Exactly. Except it's one year in the life of an English professor. Right, right. And in some ways, it's a very meaningful statement because I think by doing this almost hybrid approach, one really learned a great deal about both theory and the reality on the ground. Well, I enjoyed the idea that there were material issues uh, for professors and for students and for administrators that you could talk about in terms of how to negotiate, you know, uh, committee meetings, how to negotiate parties, uh, how to make the university a convivial place for guests that are coming and going, and how to open up discourse in the humanities and in terms of the material problems of getting money for speakers and, you know, being able yeah. to find the proper rooms for lectures. And it was with narrative that I could de- deal with those material realities. And a mind-boggling PhD defense, <laughs> yes. which, which I thought, I hope I would never have one like it. <laughs> would you like to tell us a little bit about it? Well, Is it real? We No, it's not real, <laughs> but we all have been through extremely painful yes. you know, dissertation defenses and PhD exams, and uh, we, we struggle with our students' insecurities and with some of our colleagues' um, dare I say, pedantry or humorlessness. Um, So uh, making fun of some of that, and I hope of myself as well, um, was part of the the pleasure of that text for me. Susan, this might be a moment that we should have a little music. Ah. What would you like to choose at this point? Uh, I thought it would be fun to hear some Dixieland, uh, maybe Jelly Roll Morton. I think it's called Dead Man's Blues, and I been thinking recently about mortality and writing about the issue of mortality. And what I love about this piece is that it's got what Conrad would call a kind of lugubrious drollery, a kind of mordant hilarity about uh, the finality of death. What's that I hear at 12 o'clock in the daytime? Church bell ringing. Man, you don't hear no church bell ringing at 12 o'clock in the day. Yes, indeed. Somebody must be dead. Ain't nobody dead. Somebody must be dead drunk. No, I think it's a funeral. Look here. I'll be there in a funeral. I'll be right here in that trombone phone. This is Profiles, and our guest today is Distinguished Professor Emerita Susan Gubar. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Susan, we've been discussing the personal elements of your writings. 
And at this point, I'd like to move to discuss with you your most recent book, The Memoir of a Debulked Woman. This book has had incredible resonance for a lot of people. It's been meaningful for friends of people who've been ill. It's been important also for people who want to read about the medical profession in some ways and about life in the face of significant adversity. Tell us, the book originated because of your diagnosis with ovarian cancer. Yes. In November of 2008, uh, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, which is called the silent killer because there are so few symptoms or what symptoms there are are very often misunderstood or muted. And I was in quite a state of shock about the diagnosis and found myself taking copious notes uh, through the treatment. I think that really taking those notes and then shaping them into the memoir was a kind of lifeline for me, Mm -hmm. and I've been very touched by the responses of readers. Ovarian cancer, as you say, has often been misdiagnosed and also Um, It's not well known, even though someone like Gilda Radner, who is a star, of course, of television and films, it's not just had the same impact as, let us say, breast cancer. No, it it hasn't. 23,000 American women annually are diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and 70% of them are diagnosed in the third or fourth stages, which means that um, the mortality rate is extremely high. Uh, Ovarian cancer can be cured if it's discovered at stage one, which uh, I want to make a point of saying that whenever I talk about this book because I don't want to discourage women, but there is no detection device available at the current time as there is for breast cancer or prostate cancer. And so uh, the late-stage diagnosis means that the mortality rate is just dreadful. And part of what I wanted to do with Memoir of a Debulked Woman was simply to bring ovarian cancer into cultural visibility, just to make people aware of the fact that there needs to be research for a detection device and then, of course, much better treatments because the treatments are extremely punitive and um, they're very, very debilitating. You were diagnosed in November 2008. Your first response was, I can deal with it. You yes. used the word almost serenity. That, um, but then I think you made it clear that you were more concerned ultimately with the treatment than with the cancer. And that began to evolve. Yes, I think that I was 63 when I was diagnosed, and I felt that I had had an incredibly rich and privileged life. I knew of young women who had been diagnosed with various forms of cancer, and I knew of young women with young children, and I felt that really I could deal with this. My children were grown, and I had had a fine life. I found that the treatments of ovarian cancer were worse than the disease in some respects. The initial operation, which is where I got my title, is uh, called a debulking operation, and it's a grievous assault on the body because um, they are basically, the surgeons are trying to remove as much as they can of the cancer, but they're also removing as many organs as they find infected or diseased in the abdomen. Um, so that was a shock, and then I found chemotherapy very debilitating. Three, three rounds of chemo. So far, I've had three, yes. Three rounds, yeah. And in some ways, 
you're hopeful because you're saying maybe 50 years from now it might be better treated? Well, one really hopes that if people um, become aware of the need for research money to go into detection and to better treatment, and as scientists are dealing with cancer as a genetic disease and uh, they're dealing with the various targeting various kinds of ovarian cancer, the way they're targeting various kinds of breast cancer, that there will be better scientific and then medical responses. Right now, the situation is dire. One of the comments you made intrigued me, implies that some women who fight the disease are made to feel culpable. I think there is a certain kind of shame attached to ovarian cancer. I was very struck by the fact that there are many quite wonderful memoirs of women who have had breast cancer. And since Gilda Radner, there have been very, very few publications um, by women who have had ovarian cancer. And I think that part of the problem has to do with modesty and with the um, organs that the disease attacks. So there's a kind of reticence, which I completely understand, about talking about excremental matters and about scatological issues. Um, uh, People don't want to talk about bowel obstructions. They don't want to talk about the kinds of problems that a debulking operation can cause. And I think there's a great deal of reticence, and it's related to shame and a sense that the parts of the body that are attacked are taboo, that mm-hmm. we, we shouldn't talk about them, or that it's very difficult to talk about them. And in some ways, your book will help to dispel some of these hesitancies on the part of women. I, ho- I hope that it will break the silence. Let me talk a bit about doctors, if I may. You have mixed feelings about the doctors that treated you. I once spoke with a relative of mine who's a Carmelite nun, and she said to me, I was asking her to pray for someone, and she said, no, I'm not going to pray for the person. I'm going to pray for the skill of the doctors. And I think what she implied with that was both personal skill and medical skill, how to deal with the patients. Mm-hmm. You had some problems with some of the doctors. Well, I hope I presented some of them as humorous. I mean, my most hysterical recollection uh, was that I wasn't allowed to eat for maybe seven to ten hours before or drink any fluids at all before uh, an operation. And an anesthesiologist who found that I was an English professor started reciting poetry to me. I have found out that when people find out you're an English professor, uh, they either worry about their grammar or they want to recite poetry to you. And here I was waiting for an operation, one of many operations, unfortunately, and I was dying of thirst. I hadn't had a drop to drink. And this guy starts, this anesthesiologist starts reciting, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. And I, Don and I just, my husband and I just cracked up, you know. On a more serious note, I think that uh, the surgeons and the oncologists do the best they can. I really think the state of medicine, because of the state of science, is is just at fault here. And I have to say, I have received excellent uh, care from my oncologist, who is a wonderful poet, who has published a book of poetry in Romania, and who is very responsive to me about any questions or qualms I have. This is Daniela Matei. Yes. And she stands in contrast to a local doctor who never called you 
or even wrote to you. At yes, any point. indeed, a so-called family practitioner who never did call. So you had no contact with them. No, not at all. Daniela, by the way, gave a reading with me. Tell here us in more about Daniela because she really shines in this book. She's just a remarkable human being. She's a professor of hematology and oncology at IU Simon Cancer Center. And I've met several of her uh, patients because at the reading we did at the Bloomington Playwrights Project, uh, Daniela read some of her poetry translated into English, and I read a bit of the memoir. And some of her patients were in the audience who were in Bloomington, and they came up, and I've met and I've met them, and I've I've talked with them subsequently, and we're all just astonished by her sensitivity. She is really a poet doctor which is a remarkable combination. She has the expertise of a scientist with the sensitivity and the linguistic acumen of a poet. The expertise was clear, though, wasn't it? it was, From the beginning, in yes. fact. And there was another doctor who did surgery, right? Right. At the med center. Uh, Daniela is a poet. Yes. Did you know that when you first met I, her? When I met her, she, she told me that, and I think it's made all the difference. It did. I want to ask you a bit about some of the ways in which you distracted yourself uh, through this difficult period. Um, Quilting. Now, you started quilting before. Oh, yes. I started quilting. um, I I was actually taught how to quilt by a graduate student of mine in, I think it was the late 80s. But quilting was a great solace to me. Um, There's something rhythmic about it. There's something repetitive about it. There's something about the uh, kindness of fabric and color and texture that was very soothing. And you mentioned an artist that inspired you in terms of color. Rothko. Rothko. Why? why? Rothko. Well, I had been, of course, to the chapel, which is the famous Rothko Chapel in Texas, where almost... Well, all of the canvases are shades of black. Uh, But I found that an extraordinary experience, that chapel. But that sent me to other earlier Rothko paintings, which do have bands of horizontal blocks of color. And I became very absorbed with those canvases and started uh, writing away on the web for uh, hand-dyed fabrics of slightly mutated colors of blues or yellows, and I and I actually did create a quilt that was sort of an homage to Rothko. Let me ask you a little more about quilting. I suppose that for all of us, we are passive in terms, many cases, of dealing with a doctor or nurses. We we are handled. Now, quilting represented something which you were in control of, which was creative, and which absorbed attention. Would you say? I would absolutely agree with that. I also feel that you're waiting all the time. The word patient, you really do need patience to be a patient. You're always waiting. You're waiting, you know, in a waiting room. You're waiting for the next pill. You're waiting for the next chemotherapy. You're counting the days till the next intervention. And I think having something to do with your hands and allowing your mind to roam free It takes you to another space, quilting. In some ways, it's almost an antidote in the book 
to the more difficult, almost grotesque moments that you had to deal with, isn't it? I think it's an antidote. I also think for me reading was an enormously, wonderfully enriching. I don't even want to use the word escape. I would use the word transport. So I could sit in a waiting room with a Joyce Carol Oates novel or with a memoir by Reynolds Price about his dealing with a completely different kind of cancer of the spine, and I could be immersed in his world yes. or her world, and it was it was just a great, great boon for me. And at home, you listen to music a lot. Yes. And that also acted as a, let's put it mildly, as a distraction in some ways. Yes. You were fortunate to have the richness of these alternatives. I was fortunate in every respect in terms of support system as well. I mean, I think that's why it was such a shock to me that the the medical interventions were so barbaric and that I was so unhinged by them because I I was coming with insurance from a generous university. Uh, I could stop teaching. I I could even retire and get benefits. I had wonderful friends in the community. My colleagues were bringing me dinners at night. My husband and my children were there for me. And even still, it was an unhinging experience. Susan, would you like to read something at this point for us from the book? Oh, of course. This is from a, a chapter on the surgery. Have you ever heard of a debulked woman? Have you ever seen one? I am one such living, breathing, debulked woman, though no one ever explained to me how such a being comes about, what such a condition means, or how it would feel. So I'm still finding my own debulked way of being in a decidedly bulky world. Going in for a debulking is not like hospitalization for a hernia, a gallbladder operation, a broken bone, a mastectomy, or an organ transplant at least not for the ovarian cancer patient to whom, for whom, it is decreed. In those other cases, people are generally told exactly what will be done to them, when, and how. Upon waking from anesthesia for a hernia or a gallbladder operation, a broken bone or an organ transplant, or even occasionally a mastectomy, the patient may be informed that the problem is on its way to being solved. The debulked woman, however, rarely hears such information or assurances, nor is she encouraged to rest or relax during convalescence. Why do these seemingly sound practices not pertain to the individual with ovarian cancer? The answer, to my mind, has everything to do with the unpredictable nature of the operation and thus the reticence of physicians. Impossible to anticipate the extent of the surgery until the body has been sliced open from navel to pubic bone. Who knows if malignancies have spread from both ovaries over the fallopian tubes, the uterus, the cervix, the appendix, the bladder, the liver, and parts of the intestines or lymph system. The silent killer has advanced unimpeded. Days after a CT image finally identifies the ailment, immediate measures must be taken that cannot be fully estimated or assessed until a long incision discloses the internal organs on the operating room table. There and then, efforts to stop the cancer's growth require surgeons to get up the gumption to gut a seemingly vital woman, removing many of her internal organs. Horrible as the idea of gutting may be, 
debulking is considered a marked improvement over the peak and shriek operations of the past, when a doctor who glimpsed cancer stitched the patient back up and put her on sedatives. Personally, I kind of relish the sound of peak and shriek, with its typecasting of the voyeuristic physician as a sort of drama queen, while the term debulking, if only to my ears, conjures up a censorious debunking of a patient's massive flab, bulk mail, buying in bulk, bulk food, or hulking muscle, bulking up. Debulked. What an ugly adjective. A surgery that can take six to eight hours that entails a high rate of postoperative complications. Debulking has earned the nickname MOAS, M-O-A-S, from surgeons, mother of all surgeries as was the case four or five decades ago with breast cancer and with the earlier peak-and-shriek approach. The woman to be debulked is denied the chance to know beforehand what will be done to her or to participate in any surgical decisions. Think of debulking as evisceration or vivisection or disemboweling but performed on a live human being. It is considered complete if there is no visible tumor left after surgery. Optimal if the residual tumor is less than one centimeter, and suboptimal if larger than one centimeter. Gynecologic oncologists, the specialists who perform this operation, know that as many as half of the debulking surgeries completed in the United States end up rated suboptimal. Visible lesions of cancer remain in the body, increasing the risk of recurrence. Whether the high rate, the high percentage of suboptimal debulkings is the result of more aggressive tumors or less aggressive surgical approaches, doctors must worry, how can they embark upon an injurious physical intervention that will not cure? For such specialists fully realize that microscopic cancer cells inevitably survive even optimal debulking and go on to migrate throughout the abdomen and elsewhere. Debulking which undoubtedly extends life, simply removes visually contaminated tissue so as to begin the also debilitating process of chemo as soon as possible. Susan, this is very realistic, very much a statement of how it was. You write in the book about cultural dishonesty and euphemisms that are used, and in fact in some of the literature even, that is handed out. And this is the exact opposite, isn't it, of some ways? I was very shocked by the brochures that are handed out by hospitals. And I have also noticed that on websites, um, when you find resources for ovarian cancer, they're listed under the rubric inspirational. Yes. I feel that a rhetoric of recovery does not make sense for many women who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer. On the other hand, I certainly do not want to be depressing women who need all of the resources and optimism that they can garner in order to cope with the treatment of the disease. Um, however, I do feel that uh, the upbeat language of good cheer and of cure and of recovery can be debilitating for people who are not in that ballgame. Did you find this easier to write about than to speak about at the time? I did. I still find it rather difficult to speak about. And part of the issue is that it's such a sensitive topic for patients who might be listening, for example, to this radio interview. 
every patient is very different, and some patients really do need to uh, feel that they are battling their uh, cancer and that they can be among the group in the percentage that does survive. So I feel that it's very difficult to talk about. For me, it's it's such a, a rough terrain that it's easier to have the meditative time that you have in writing where you can choose every word mm-hmm. and be careful and sensitive to what your reader's response might be. Talking is more difficult than writing on this subject for me. I was impressed with it because I was reminded as I read this passage myself of a line from Eliot's in The Four Quartets, which he says... Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Yes. But you were able to do that. Was that part of... I think for me, I love the line. Uh, It's a wonderful line from Eliot. Um, I think for me, trying to take in the reality was extremely important in order to uh, eventually face my impending mortality with some equanimity. And that is an issue that we all struggle with, yeah. not just ovarian cancer patients. I, my, my new writing is about mortality and uh, trying to understand what literature can tell us about it, but also trying to understand my own tangled feelings about seeing the finitude of my existence. One thing cancer does is it does give you the time to dwell and meditate and think about your own mortality. But you also brought to this period in your life all of the skills that you have had. You were a trained scholar. You immersed yourself in the scientific reports in writing the book. You were able to look upon it as a phenomenon. And and at the same time, it was your lifeline. I think uh, having a training in in the humanities for me was key in dealing with this illness. I I could go to the artwork of Frida Kahlo, which unfortunately I could only reproduce in black and white, which is just stunning. It's on on, the front piece of the book. Yes, on the front piece. And um, I think it's just stunning work on how the self feels within a wounded body. Uh, There is nobody as brilliant in terms of insights about the wounded body as Frida Kahlo. Um, I could turn to the medical articles. I could use the web to read the most recent medical articles on treatments and on diagnosis and on detection. I had two assistants who could bring me books from our extraordinary library. I mentioned that very few memoirs have been written about ovarian cancer, but a few have been self-published. And our library is so astonishing that they would even get me the self-published books, which you really have to order and then you know get run off for you. And I got to read everything I could get my hands on from the library about ovarian cancer and memoirs about cancer in general. Susan, let's talk a little bit about Don, your husband, and your daughters. They were remarkable, weren't they, in many ways? I read this with quite a bit of emotion. Don Uh, was always there, and your daughters took upon this with an intensity that was quite moving. Well, I have a friend who read the book and who said that if it were a novel she would really fault the character of Don as being completely unrealistic. And, uh, you know, another friend of mine calls him St. Donald. I mean, part of the pleasure of writing the book was really 
sort of portraying his sensitivity and kindness throughout this extremely arduous process. And my children have been and continue to be marvels of, of care and kindness. And, and in many ways, your daughters were ready to, one of them, I think, was ready to give up her teaching to come and be with you. They both made sacrifices in their lives at various points where they felt that Don really needed some help in post-operative situations. They've been traveling to Bloomington on and off, and uh, they've been a terrific ballast. And in some ways, they inspired you to have the treatment. Yes, I think you, you want to live as long as you can for the people who love you. Yeah. A former student of yours, a doctoral student, told me recently that people wanted to be there for you. They were not doing it out of a sense of duty. And it was in a way a reflection of the way you had nurtured friends and students and family. And I think that's a wonderful statement. I've, I've had wonderful outpourings of letters and uh, visitors and wonderful communications from my students, my graduate students in particular. There's one quote that I'm going to read because it sums up what we've been talking about. It's from Virginia Woolf and in which you say, There is a virgin forest in each, a snowfield where even the print of birds' feet is unknown. Here we go alone and like it, better so. Always to have sympathy, always to be accompanied, always to be understood would be intolerable. Yes, Wolf's sense of solitude and her sense that in some curious way the ill are deserters uh, who float with the stream of life and who are curiously given a kind of benefit, which is that as they're floating and deserting from the battle of making money or getting having a job or getting to work on time, as they're floating down the stream, the ill actually have the time to look at the sky. And that sense of illness in a curious way as a detachment from the everyday quotidian struggle um, and a sense that it gives you a space and a time for contemplation is something that, that Wolf thinks about quite often. And it also describes the need to sometime be detached and by oneself. Indeed. And that's very strategic in your book. Yes. What is this loco-oncology? Well, it's a kind of um, neologism, I guess you would call it, uh, a portmanteau word, oncology, morphs into what I call loconocology, or, lo- or, or loco-oncology, loconocology, or loco-oncology. <laughs> I think what happens is that physicians and patients find themselves in a double bind. That is, the chemicals that are going to stop the cancer will cause their own terrible side effects. So you're in a catch-22 as both a doctor and a patient um, when the treatment is going to produce after-effects or symptoms that are as egregious as the original cancer, if not more so, it morphs into something that feels like loco-oncology or loconocology. Susan, you end the book saying, not the disease but the fiber and fabric of life. You still hold to that? I would like to have my remaining time be filled with life Mm -hmm. and with an appreciation of the time I have rather than with uh, 
obsessions about treatment and concerns about about cancer. Uh, that's something that I feel strongly about. It's a struggle to achieve because of the anxiety of illness, but it's something to aim at. You know, as we come to the end of our program, I'm struck by something. Your earlier books had a different audience in many ways. Your teaching had a different audience. You were a wonderful teacher. You brought your undergraduates to a world of literature and reading and an understanding of life and films, and you led your graduates to new fields of thought, and your colleagues read your books because of the both theoretical and practical applications of what you were writing. This book is different, isn't it? It's almost, to use the Latin word, evade mecum, a guide for, uh, for people. It has all the elements of scholarship, but it has something more. Thank you. Um, I think that uh, this book is much more personal than my other books, although all my books came out of personal yes. issues, but this one dwells in the personal and in the physical, in the embodied. But I do think that the writing of this book was facilitated enormously by my teaching, especially of freshmen, oddly enough. I taught a freshman course called Writing Disaster. Now, the, the, the freshmen thought that meant that their writing was going to be a disaster. That's not what it was about. It was an introduction to literature and composition, and it was about writers who deal with disaster from the book of Job all the way through to Toni Morrison's okay. Beloved, writing that deals with the problem of suffering. And in that course, I taught a great deal of poetry by Emily Dickinson and Gerard Manley Hopkins to freshmen. And the freshmen could up their grade if they would come up in front of the 200 students and recite by heart a poem. So I knew these poems in my, I knew them by heart because my students had been reciting them for years. And a great deal of the poetry of Hopkins and of um, Dickinson that I, I cite in the memoir comes out of that teaching experience. So again, I think to return to what we began with, there's a way in which the students are there in this text. They're just invisible. Susan, what music would you like us to end the program with? I thought the Cavatina by Beethoven in one of his late quartets, I think it's 130, um, would be a, a transcendent way to think about solitude, finality, and the issues of cancer. Thank you. We've been speaking with Professor Susan Gubar. Thank you, Susan, for being with us. This is Patrick O'Mara for Profiles, and thank you all for listening.
The program you just heard was recorded in July of 2012. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.